I'm Reine Boeter. I'm a director at the law firm STBB at their head office in Cape Town. I'm taking the opportunity this morning to tell you more about the Financial Intelligence Center Act. Many, many people find it a dramatic and boring piece of legislation, but behind it there's a lot of fascinating detail and it's relevant to know why the legislature made so many changes to that piece of legislation at, in October 2018. All of us are used to when you apply for a cell phone or a gym contract, buy a house, sell a house, uh, buy a motor vehicle, that people ask you for your FICA documents. And one might think, why is this necessary? FICA is not a new act or a unique act. Um, we are part of a group of countries that have similar legislation in place in order to combat worldwide money laundering. Whilst we might think it's an additional burden that government puts on us as, as citizens, it really isn't. It's international practice by now. What FICA generally says uh, accountable institutions must do, such as estate agencies, law firms, second-hand car dealers and the like, there's quite a few of them, is that you must, in essence, know your client. And that's why they refer to it as the KYC principle, standing for know your client. How do you know your client? They ask you to determine what is that person's identity details, what's his name, identity number, where that person stays, what the source of funds for the transaction is, um, and further detail as may be necessary. You might wonder, what does FIC Center do with this detail? Why are they interested in that? Generally, what the FIC Center does is they collect information about people who enter into transactions. They want to know that if I have certain money that I pay cash or in a transaction, who am I? Why do... Why do I use that cash? They don't necessarily do anything with that information immediately, but they build up a record or a footprint of that individual. And if they then see in the long run that this individual has lots of cash or appears to be over a history of information that they collected about that person, then they can start highlighting the individual and pass the details on to the National Prosecuting Authority, who will then initiate steps if necessary. So, in essence, accountable institutions, your agent, your uh, law firm will ask you for FICA documentation. They are obliged by law to do it. It's not because they want to add to paperwork or charge you an extra fee. It's, it's obligatory. So, I said to you, the first thing is know your client. You find out where they stay, what they do, um, where they stay, what the identity number is and the like, and you collect that information. The other thing that an entity has to do is they must keep records. So once I've transacted with you, I must keep the records in my files for a period of time. I cannot just delete it or throw it away. Um, FICA says keep it for five years at least, so that in case they want to verify or recheck information, it's available for them. The other thing that the Act says is that entities must train staff all employees in the organization on a regular basis and update them on what their obligations in terms of the FIC uh, Act is. In other words, um, whether it's a receptionist, whether it's a paralegal, whether or not it's an agent, um, those people must all comply with FICA and they must have knowledge of FICA. The Act is very, very clear on that. And the Act then further says you must appoint in every uh, organization a uh, officer, a reporting officer who collects information so that there's a central point in, in every um, organization where FICA 
relevant uh, uh, policies and decisions are made and also to be the point of contact between the fixed centre and that company. So if I have a situation where I'm, I'm comfortable with the transaction, I think there's a risk of money laundering, I will report it to my FIC compliance officer and that officer will report it to the fixed centre. Having said that I'm uncomfortable with a transaction, what do I mean? The, the further obligation that the legislation puts on uh, uh, accountable institutions is that they say, firstly, you've got reporting obligations. The one reporting obligation is the interesting one. They say that every um, instance where a client deals with 25,000 Rand in cash um, in any way, the FIC wants a notification of that. That means that if I buy a second-hand car, I've got 25,000 Rand cash, perhaps because I have a tenant and he pays me cash every month, that the car dealership must then report that to the FIC centre because they received 25,000 Rand in cash. Um, similarly with a bank, if a bank receives someone who pays him cash, 25,000 Rand or more, um, the bank has to send a note to the FIC. And you might think that in a country like South Africa, uh, people are poor, we all do EFTs, nobody carries around cash. Are there so many cash reporting transactions taking place? You'd be fascinated to hear that in the fixed centres year report, um, the 27 year end report, they identified that it was more than 4.3 million instances, individual instances, where they received cash threshold reports. In other words, we're speaking about people in the, in the formal sector making such uh, uh, reports to the fixed centre more than 4.3 million times. It, it's really fascinating. But that's the one leg of the reporting function. The other leg of the reporting function is the fact that as any institution dealing with a client, the, the accountable institutions, must report to the fixed centre anything that they find suspicious about a transaction. In this instance, the amount of money involved, if money is involved or not, doesn't matter at all. It's just the fact that I find that something is suspicious doesn't make sense. If someone isn't keen to let me know um, where the money is coming from, or you are asked to pay money to various people, perhaps many of them aren't uh, South Africans, um, and it doesn't make sense to you, um, in terms of what you know about the client, a suspicion is raised and you're obliged to report it to the FIC. And then, interestingly, once a transaction is reported to the FIC, you are, as, as attorneys at least, we entitled to continue with the transaction with that client um, and the FIC will let us know within 48 hours if we shouldn't continue. But generally, as I say, we make the report if necessary and that client um, the FIC then keeps those details in its uh, records and if they want to action on it at any time in future, um, they have that record. Um, but otherwise, if, if you've made the report, there's no obligation on you immediately to stop the transaction. The one obligation that is on you is that you may not advise that individual client of the fact that you've reported him to the FIC. Um, that's, that's quite important. That in, in, in a nutshell, is generally what the FIC requires of, of institutions to, to, to practice and the information they must obtain. So for the man in the street, if you are asked by an organisation, please to provide the following information, it might feel a little bit 
um, too much personal information, but, but the institution has no choice. They have to obtain that information from you, and it is for a good reason. The Fixed Centre, um, if, if you look at their year reports, are exceptionally successful in, in finding transactions where money laundering takes place, and it, it, it's for this purpose that we have to do it. Um, so that that's a positive thing, and you you are doing good when you when you comply with your FICA um, requirements. But the point of the, the the conversation this morning is also to highlight what happened in the 2018 when there was a big amendment made to this act, and what the amendment was about was that the FIC Centre said it's much better for accountable institutions to, in a way, self-monitor, self-regulate, self-assess the risk posed by a particular transaction, um, rather than the fixed centre telling us how to assess risk in a transaction, even if I say assess risk, the risk of money laundering. So, where in the old days, the legislation was like a tick box. They said, if you deal with the individual, you must obtain the following information, if you deal with an the entity, there's another list you have to obtain that list of information. They say they're no longer going to proceed like this. They say we're going to put the obligation on the entity's uh, shoulders and say determine for yourself what you believe the risk in a particular transaction is and collect the documents that you think would address that risk by way of knowing the client, knowing where the funds come from. The consequence of this has been that in the past where there was internal rules that was prescribed by the fixed centre and everybody basically all institutions had the same rules now the institutions all have personalized rules because every institution must make his own rules so it's possible for you to walk in the offices of a state agent a and he gives you one list of documents that they require, whilst estate agent B says, I want a different list of documents, because the fix says you must self-regulate, you must determine the risk yourself, and it becomes personalized. So bear that in mind when you deal with organizations, um, they are doing what they are supposed to do in terms of the law. So the one big thing was this change in risk perspective that the 2018 Act brought about, and the other big thing that they do, there's an Two further things. They said that when you deal with a natural person client, um, you have to make a differentiation between people who are what they call prominent um, influential people in South Africa, who are generally um, people in, in, in government positions that, that has a, a status, a seniority status, um, people who are in receipt of huge government um, contracts in excess of a certain amount, those people become interesting for the fixed centre and they say if you deal with such a person, it's not necessarily suspicious or wrong or anything untowards going forward, but you have to treat those prominent influential people plus their spouses, plus their family, plus their close associates a little bit differently. And where for generally uh, in, in, in general rules for, for individuals where you have to ask only of them what are your source of funds for this transaction for example if I'm buying a house where am I sourcing the funds to do so from with um, prominent influential people you must in addition ask what is the source of wealth um, which, which is a 
dramatic question to ask of any individual, I believe, um, and it might come as 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 uh, difficult. Why does someone ask me? Why does my attorney ask me? Why does my state agent ask me? What is my source of wealth? Um, but it's obligatory in terms of the law that that question has to be asked and has to be answered. The law does not prescribe at present that you have to give proof of your source of wealth, but you must ask a question and that person must indicate it in, in the questionnaire posed to him. So I've mentioned now the first thing that we've gone away from, from, from a rules-based to a risk-based um, compliance and also that we treat natural persons a little bit differently in that there's a category created of people who are prominent um, domestic individuals and certain prominent um, uh, non-citizens as well um, and that you have to obtain further levels of information from them. A further thing that they made an amendment to, which is a very clever amendment, I believe, is that they said when you deal as an entity, if, if I'm an attorney or I'm an estate agent and I deal with a client, that and that client is an entity, a company, close corporation, a trust, uh, trust is not legally an entity but it's treated the same, um, and I deal with that entity, then I must ficker the entity and I ficker the people behind them. In other words, I, I obtain what's that entity's registered address, I obtain what's the registered address of the directors or members or trustees of that um, entity that I deal with, and all the usual ficker uh, documentation I will obtain. But, says the Amendment Act, I also want to know who is the put it in, in, in layman's terms, the one behind the scenes who's pushing the buttons of that entity. Because that's the person who's interest, interesting from a money laundering point of view, or could be interesting from a money laundering point of view. So the additional requirement that I now ask is, you must find out who's your main, um, main controlling person or persons behind this entity and that's the person that you really want the details of and that you have to keep on record and, and keep safe. Um, I really believe that that's a, it's a difficult task on an accountable institution to, to, to obtain this information from entities uh, because generally you must find out what their shareholding is, who's got veto rights and the like, but it makes sense from a money laundering point of view because the one who can control the funds is the one who is relevant, if I can say it in that way, um, relevant from a money laundering uh, point of view, and that's necessary that you know that that person's identity. Um, the FIC Amendment Act was well received, uh, generally, um, and most companies you will see have now drafted for themselves what they call a risk management and compliance programs. This is the risk-based method to attempt to uh, figure compliance and you will no longer find the rules and as a result of these changes and as a result of the fact that the rules are slightly different and that it's individual per entity, it's possible to find that different entities ask you for different types of information and that's fully within their obligations of the Financial Intelligence Centre Amendment Act. Thank you for listening. For more information, contact us on stbb.co.za.